Hey everybody, Merry Christmas and welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. Okay, this week we are paying our respects once again to the great music city of Cleveland, Ohio by showcasing two long-standing local legends, Mark Absek and Jonah Coslin. So I'll tell you more about Jonah later, but first up is Mark. Mark's doing a lot of things locally. His first big break comes in the mid-70s when he's invited to join Wild Cherry. And he goes around the world touring with Wild Cherry, as in play that funky music white boy Wild Cherry. Yeah, he's a, he's a member of that band for a couple of years. Well, he leaves Wild Cherry and he joins up with Jonah and Jonah's new band Breathless in the late 70s. And Breathless puts out a couple of albums, the first of which is self-titled and it's amazing. I highly, highly recommend the first Breathless album. Well, after that, Mark would join forces with the man who would become his longest-lasting musical collaborator, Donnie Iris. In fact, he co-wrote Donnie's biggest hit, Aaliyah, that you're listening to here, one of the greatest rock songs ever. Well, I'll let Mark tell you all about it, but basically there was a legal problem that popped up in relation to this song, Aaliyah, and it changed Mark's life forever. It inspired him to become a copyright lawyer. So Mark today is a copyright lawyer in Cleveland while still playing with Donnie Iris periodically. It's really, he's done so much. He didn't have a lot of time to talk, unfortunately, and I wish he had because there is so much stuff to get into here. He wrote one of Bon Jovi's first hits. He wrote and produced some disco hits from the late 70s that are really amazing. He put out some solo albums in the mid to late 80s under the name Cellar Full of Noise that are really interesting and really good. The guy has done a lot of really interesting things. So we're going to get to Jonah later, but these guys were both a listener request from Kevin Adkins. Kevin asked me to track these guys down, and it just so happened that I managed to get them both, and we thought we'd put them together in the same episode, so I hope you enjoy it. First up is Mark Apsek. He called me from his home in Cleveland. We'll just jump right into it. So it's been interesting. The two cities that that conjure up the biggest responses whenever I have a guest on from those cities are Philadelphia and Cleveland. And music lovers in Cleveland just are super passionate about it. And last year, one of my first guests was Rich Spina. I don't know if you know Rich. He was a member of a group called Love Affair. Yeah, I, I, I know Rich. I'm not really close with Rich, but I know who okay. he is, and I, I'm familiar with Love Affair, sure. Okay, sure. And then Rich put me in contact with George Sippel of American Noise, and I believe you know George, maybe, or know American yes. Noise anyway. Yeah, I know okay. George, yep. yep. So, and then it was from the Ameri- – it was George's episode that sparked my listener, Kevin Atkins, to – have me track you down. Now, you have a really interesting story about why you are now a copyright lawyer. And Mm -hmm. I thought maybe, I'm sure you've told this story a million times, but explain to us how you go from rock star to copyright lawyer. Well, I wrote a song, uh, co-wrote a song with Donnie uh, called Aaliyah for uh, our band. One of the greatest rock songs ever, in my opinion. Thank you. Uh-huh. Which which Donnie and I founded. Um, that's a whole other story. But in any event, to answer your question, we had a little bad luck. We were out on the road after the song was starting to become a hit, and uh, received a summons and complaint in the mail. Somebody said we stole the song. Did not. I really uh, wrote a lot of it, and I know how it started. And um, you know, I know I didn't steal it. So 
you know, I was a little naive, and it was the '80s, and oh, I'll just explain it, and it'll go away. I mean, we didn't, we didn't do anything. Of course, it doesn't work like that. Some lawyer took it on, uh, on contingency, I would guess. You know, it wasn't going to go away until it went away. And uh, unfortunately, in cases like this, the defendants always pay. And so we were exonerated by a jury trial, but the case, even though we won, it cost. A lot of money, way more than a song made, just to pay our legal yeah. fees. So I think I read somewhere about one hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Yeah, something like that. And, and this, uh, is, that, this is after you won the case, right? Yeah, we didn't pay yes. any damages. It was just to pay our lawyers. It, it was a jury yeah. trial. It goes on for yeah. a couple, three years. A lot of time invested yeah. in it, and it's too bad. And they said, "Well, maybe you ought to settle." And I, I didn't want to do that because uh, I didn't mm-hmm. do anything wrong. So after the whole thing was over and uh, we had our royalties recouped uh, to pay back our legal fees, you know, I had a bad taste in my mouth. I just felt, you know, it was bad luck. I just felt kind of life was unfair, and sometimes it is, and that's just the way it is. But it it, it got me interested in law, so I I transitioned. I decided I was going to go to law school to defend other companies that or persons that were going through these unjust suits. I felt very yeah. passionate about it. I still do. It informs my practice. And uh, now I've been a lawyer for 20 years. I'm very glad I'm a lawyer. So sure. it's it's an example in life. You know, sometimes you know bad things happen and and they're bad, and you just simply must uh-huh. endure endure them. Maybe some really terrible health things or something. But sometimes bad things happen. You think, and it really turns out to be the best thing later on. And that's sort of what that lawsuit was for me. Yeah. Um, okay. Were the people who were coming after you were they claiming that your song was sounded too much like an existing song. That's what I never well, find. What's yeah, the yeah. There? Well, you know, that's the thing. I mean, there was no song out there. It was. That's uh, what I'm wondering. It, what does this? What are you infringing? Well, there was a uh, uh, an amateur songwriter who wrote a song, uh, and uh, I won't get into it too much, but I can tell you that apparently, and we learned this in the trial, he apparently he had gone out to L.A. and met with a promo guy from Universal MCA, you know, whose job it wasn't even to sign bands, but I guess this guy, yeah. well, I think, you know, you can imagine it, this guy was just uh, from Universal was just trying to be polite, he didn't, so he testified that he listened to the song, and I think he testified that he threw the tape away or whatever, but in any event, they, they concocted uh. They concocted this theory that, you know, this guy had taken the tape and got it to me and Donnie, and, then you know, we ended up at MCA Universal in this work this great work well the whole that didn't even hold water because we were passed by everybody when this when we tried to shop i i made this in secret it was a labor oh, really? of love for me oh yeah no it was i mean the our management knew but it, it was really like self-funded even through the management company it was on spec the the studio okay. was doing it on spec nobody knew nobody cared what we were doing i was the only one that right. cared and donnie ultimately and then uh, you know, ultimately the band, I felt we were working on something very special for about six months in secret. So yeah. once it was done, then we tried to shop it. Nobody wanted it. So we put it out on a very small label that our management controlled. So this whole access theory just didn't even hold any water because yeah. we weren't on MCA Universal to begin with. And yeah. only after the record was like, I don't know, 80 with a bullet did Chrysalis and MCA, uh, a subsidiary of MCA, vie for the product. So so their whole theory didn't, 
make any sense either. But the judge wouldn't dismiss it, so we had to wait to, for the jury. And so, you know, that's the way it goes. Sometimes life's not fair. Yeah, that is too bad. Now, when you decided, how quickly after that did you decide to go to law school? When was that? Well, I was I was uh, thinking about it during the trial, and and I guess the trial was maybe. 84, 85, I'm somewhere in there. I'm not really sure. I took a couple of years after that to let it all ruminate. You know, I wanted to make it in music, so I went to college for about a day out of high school, and I was just <laughs> like, you know, I, I, I don't, this isn't for me right now. Right, right. And I think I made the right decision. You know, I just felt I would either be a bum or a success. Uh-huh. Yeah. attacked music for a few years. To right. become a lawyer, I had to go back to undergraduate school. So I began okay. that oh, in wow. 1988. Okay. Yeah, I went to seven years straight, and then okay. I, um, I graduated in about 1992. No, okay. graduated undergrad in 1992, graduated law school in 1995, and then I began right. practice. Okay, okay. The reason I ask that is because that is a very dramatic pivot that someone would make in their life. I mean, these are two careers that are completely immersive and all-in. You are giving everything you have to being a rock star, and then you're giving everything you have to being a lawyer, and they're not even remotely connected to each other. When you decided to go back to school and to follow this other path, did you think, well, music will now just become a backseat hobby, or I'll get back to it later? Or what was the thinking? I mean, I imagine you had to make a pretty big decision right then. I love music always, and I was probably the last one in the band to really keep hanging on to just music, music. You know, mm-hmm. I was the main main writer or the main engine of the band, so I had a, okay. and I was just trying to dig in, and I I was enjoying it increasingly less. The, it was just mm-hmm. you know not fun anymore. It was too much pressure, so I, and I needed a break. So going back yeah. to school was a, was a good break. I, I okay. liked it. And okay. I went back to school for seven years, and I then I became a lawyer, and I felt like, well, you know, I went through all this. I should start practicing. So sure. I did. Yeah. I got an offer from a firm, and I began to do it. Didn't know if I'd like it. That was a big adjustment. Yeah. And then, you know, gradually, I mean, I'm, I'm you know, we kept making records because that's what we did. And, and, and now, I mean, fast forward. Uh, so now I'm a lawyer. We, mm-hmm. everybody in the band, we're, we're, we have a fantastic band. Uh, which your same original members, except for Paul Gall, who's been with us for 20 years on bass. Wow. Nice. And we're everybody else is original. We're we're the best of friends. We've never Good. had major major squabbles. We never made enough money to have major squabbles, sure. <laughs> but we've we've made just enough money to keep playing. You know, yeah. for people mainly in western Pennsylvania, eastern Ohio, and right. southern okay. Ohio, et cetera. So we still play good shows. We we value our friendship. The band is good. still really good on stage, and I enjoy it more than ever now. Just we all have our own jobs and stuff yeah. now, and we just okay. keep, we still record, and we still yeah. and now it's more fun again. Okay, what's Donnie doing? What's does he have a regular well, job Donnie, outside of not, being not a, not now? He for a while there he did do something. Okay, he he uh, he was sort of a celebrity in the town, so. He fell into a mortgage company. He was he was oh. working with a mortgage company, but he's retired now. He uh, plays a lot of music. He plays a lot of golf, and okay. um, nice. he's a very ha- happy guy. 
good. And he loves smoking cigars, and uh, <laughs> you know we have a good good time at gigs, cool. and good. he's still awesome on the stage. Uh, I believe it. I've never had a chance to see you guys, but I hope I do sometime. So I'm curious. Now you have. I want to go back into your musical history and move off the law, but and we'll touch more on this later. But you had done so many different things. It seemed like by the time you hooked up with Donnie, I'm curious. Why hook your wagon to Donnie? And what was it about Donnie that made you decide, I don't need Wild Cherry, I don't need Breathless, I don't need... Well, here's where it worked. Whatever it is. Uh, we were in Wild Cherry. We had the big hit play a funky music, White Boy. didn't have that much to do with that. I was just a keyboard player in the band. And, okay. you know, um, that, you know, the guy by the name of Robert Freese, he was the engine of that band. He was, he was very talented, and he did a great job driving that. I learned a lot about making records. That was a one-hit wonder, and it was, you know, as, as much as everybody wanted a follow-up, it, it just wasn't happening. So yeah. that band was breaking up. So therefore... I got invited to join a band called Breathless. by Jonah Coslin, who had left the Michael Stanley band, because he wanted to be a writer. And so that was really Jonah's thing. And we had a very nice conversation, I remember, in a, in a bar. We weren't drinking. We were just at, the, at a bar and talking. You know, I said to Jonah, I said, you know, I, I, it's time for me to start writing my own stuff, too. And he, he got that. He appreciated it. And he said, but 
but Breathless is going to be for my stuff, and I and I appreciated that. So we agreed that I would be the best keyboard player I could in Breathless, but simultaneously I'd work on a project that I wanted to work on. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now I'm not a lead singer. I'm um I'm a I'm not a front guy even. I'm kind of a weird mm-hmm. guy. I don't. I, I, I'm a behind the scenes guy. I yeah, write, mad scientist. Right, write and produce yeah. records. I don't. And and I met Donnie in Wild Cherry near the end. He joined. He was asked to mm-hmm. join. You know, he's a very likable guy. And I believe it. I um, really kind of liked him a lot. And uh, we've struck up a friendship. We even roomed together. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I heard him sing, and I thought there were elements of his voice that, you know, I could exploit, and mm-hmm. he would be the perfect front guy because he's just such a nice guy. He was really in need of somebody like me who was a hard worker, who was going to, mm-hmm. you know, really put the pedal to the metal, have a vision. You know, um, Donnie is very laid back. He might not do anything if yeah. uh, if he's not um, cajoled into doing it. I'm exactly the opposite, okay? okay. So... It was a really kind of, we were formed to each other, both personality-wise and our talents. So I said to Donnie, I said, look, would would you ever want to make a record? We didn't know it was going to be called Donnie Iris. We just, we, it okay. could have been called a, a group name or you yeah. know, it could have been yeah. uh, called AFSEC and Iris or something. But mm-hmm. we went in the studio, and as we were making the record, I decided, and I don't remember how it happened, but I know I, I had really just said, you know, it, it's going to be better. And I wanted to be a producer anyway. I was mostly a fan of producers like Roy Thomas Baker and mm-hmm. Bill Simsek. And I just wanted to be a producer behind the scenes. And I said, let's, let's make this Donnie's record. And yeah. so that's that's kind of okay. how, how it happened. And then we experimented with all this stacking in the studio because the studio yeah. we were in was a, was a very good studio, but every studio is different. This had a homemade board. There were some deficiencies because of that, and there were also, I noticed as you stacked up Donnie's voice, some wonderful things happened. And Mm. um, I, you know, kind of enjoyed this because I had a hand then in the production process. It was pretty heavy production, and Uh uh, we we got into stacking his voice. I knew... Nobody else was doing things like this except for Queen and, you know, stuff like that. Right. So it was uh, an environment built on creation in the studio. Okay. As a po- you know, Breathless, for example, Jonah would come in with a song. We'd rehearse it a lot. And then we'd uh-huh. go into a recording studio, and everybody would know their parts, and you just recorded the record. Uh, very opposite with Donnie Iris. Okay. Okay. We would cut tracks and then I would layer Donnie's voice and arrange as we went. Got it. You know, so that first album really became a labor of love.
Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's so good. I, I've been, you know, diving deep into all your stuff lately to prepare to talk to you. Some of it I already knew. Some of it I didn't realize was you. Some of it was new to me. All of it is so fun and so varied and all over the place. I just love it all so much. So oh, um, I do. So let's, okay, so let's go back to the beginning just for a little bit. So Wild Cherry, if I understand correctly, when you joined Wild Cherry, that song was already, did you play on that song? I know you didn't write it, but I think they already had it kind of done, right? Well, it had, they had it kind of done. I mean, uh, I was a session musician at the time, okay. and I was trying to break into the music world, and Cleveland had a bit of a recording scene, and yeah. a guy, but you know, the Belkins were very famous here. They're a big concert promotion company, and mm-hmm. I grew up going to Belkin shows, so that was like, wow, Belkins. And my, yeah. my favorite band, the James Gang, was managed by the Belkins. And then Belkin was partners with Carl Maduri, who is a a producer who had produced a couple of hit records. So I said to myself, I got to get to Carl Maduri and and Mike Belkin. Mm -hmm. Eventually, one thing led to another, you know, just through knowing people in town and playing as a keyboard player, somebody said, you know, you ought to get Mark Essex to come and play keys on this. And so I became a member of a session group we called our that was called the Sweet City Session Band. And I used to go mm-hmm. to the studio, and I ended up being sort of the music director of this band. So we'd play on records all the time. And then one day I got a call to come to the studio to add some keys for a band called Wild Cherry. So I played on a number of things that day. Uh, I'll tell you the truth. I mean, I try. Play of funky music was done. I I will tell you, and I'm not just saying this. I heard the song and I thought that there was something there. I mean, I don't want to say I had magic yeah. ears, but I was like, sure. wow, that sounds like a hit yeah. song to me. And yeah, I tried to play stuff on it. Like I remember, I tried clavinet, I tried mm. organ. Nothing really worked. It was like mm. done. So yeah. there are no keyboards on that record. I didn't contribute a thing to that record. Yeah. Really? But you played on the rest of that album, and then I think you went on tour yeah. with them and everything? Oh yeah, we I played on the rest of the album, and then I we went on tour, and then I played on the second album, the third album, and okay. I don't know if there was a fourth album, and I think just yeah, fourth album. Then I got into Breathless, and then went to uh, okay. Donnie. Yeah, yeah, and Breathless, they're another band that I discovered through being having you requested as a guest, Jonah as well. Actually, if Jonah hears this, I'm gonna come find you eventually here, Jonah. I loved that first Breathless album. 
I was not familiar with it. It is so great, so much fun. The second one, not as into that one as much. It's okay, but it's a little. Uh, there's other stuff Dark. out there, stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, it's a little more, yeah, it's a little, you know, bluesy, swamp rock kind of thing. It's yeah. just, the first one is so fun. And did, yeah. so did you, you played on that, but you didn't contribute to songwriting on that one either? It was well, no, but, but, you know, we all contributed our parts. So sure, of course. Jonah, Jonah writes a lot of songs, so he'll keep coming, you know, with a song, and then mm-hmm. whatever it was, we'd each play it down and, you know, start playing parts we thought might fit, and, okay. you know... If Jonah thought a part was cool, he'd you know kind of give the thumbs up, and we'd all, you know, so so it was really kind of a you know democratic band except for the writing okay. part. It was it was Jonah. Okay. So Jonah wrote a lot of songs, and yeah, I agree that first album was fun, and we went down a criteria, and we really had our parts kind of worked out, and uh, it was fun going down there working with Don Gaiman. You know, the Bee Gees were down there at the same time mm-hmm. doing a follow up to Saturday Night Fever, so. That was, that was fun. It was a really great experience to be in that band, and I, you know, formed some great friendships in that band. Cool. And of course, I still see Jonah uh, from time yeah. to time. So. Okay. Nice. So, where does Mandalay fit into this? Yeah, that's interesting. So, and that's I love actually, that song too. I didn't know that one you. either. Working, I was, you know, I was really busy at the time as a producer. I was producing a lot of acts at the behest of uh, Carl Maduri and and a, and a production team. His sons were part of the company, and 
Carl had found this band, La Flavor, and they didn't really write their own material. And so we needed some a song for them. And we tried a couple things that fell flat. And then I had this idea that they have a Latin-sounding name, you know, La Flavor. Mm-hmm. And so I came up with that song, Mandalay, which is, you know, really kind of a cha-cha beat, to tell you the truth. Yeah. So, yeah, th- that's interesting. That There's so many people that know that song because in the Latin world, it, it really it didn't sell a lot of records. I didn't make mm. a lot of money off that, but it it was a big club hit, you know, in yeah. the in the discotheques, they played the, the hell out of that record. And it got yeah. up to number seven on Billboard's dance charts. And in some other parts of the world, it made an impact on the pop charts. But, you know, it's... Okay. Besides Were you Ali, an official uh, member of the band? I mean, cause no, no, I was, I was watching some clips on YouTube, hilarious clips of kind of goofy-looking white guys playing that song in the late 70s early 80s and i'm trying to find you 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 have very uh, specific hair no i wasn't there i wasn't there okay i, I was in the studio i'm sort of the i was the honorary additional okay. member because okay. i did play on the records in the studio with the guys and they were really nice guys we had a lot of fun they didn't really write so i did a lot of the writing okay. and uh you know it it uh just kind of ran its course but we had that one record yeah I was going to, I cut you off. You were going to say, is this the second most popular song behind Aaliyah? Uh, that one, Aaliyah, Loves Like a Rock, probably, maybe, yeah. and then and then She Don't Know Me for Bon Jovi, probably. Yeah, that's where I'm going next. So that song, that was, I've never been a huge Bon Jovi fan, but that was the song that introduced me to Bon Jovi, and I liked it. I was, a, I was a young kid growing up in Salt Lake City, Mormon kid, a little bit afraid of liking hair metal too much, which they weren't mm-hmm. exactly, but they were hard rock, long hair. And so I had to like some of that stuff in secret, even though I didn't want to be too outward about it in my religious community or whatever. Mm-hmm. But I really like that song. And I feel like that song and Runaway and their earlier hits have been sort of uh, cut out of the... Bon Jovi history in a way, you know, well, like it's not on their greatest hits pack. The Crossroads yeah. album, is it, Runaway, is that on there either? No, uh-uh. I don't. Think well, that's so. interesting. I, that. I mean, I, I always thought, I always thought, you know, maybe. I know. I don't think they're. I don't know. I I don't. I know my song has never been a part of any packages, and I just assumed because you know they didn't write it. I don't even know if they were that thrilled. I mean, the way it all happened 
was I wrote that song for another band, and I worked really hard on this other producing, you know, really for no money. It was all, like, on the if come. And I put a lot of hours in producing this whole record that, you know, came out on MCA for, like, a day, and then it just was dead. You know, it's an example of just putting yourself in a position to get lucky. There was a guy named Lenny Pizzi who was with... I thought he was with Epic, and uh, he knew Tony Bongiovi, who was John Bongiovi's brother. And mm-hmm. Tony was an engineer, and and Lenny found this that tune, and he gave it to Tony and said, "Look, this is a good song. You should have your brother's band record it for their first album." So maybe they weren't thrilled with it. Maybe I, I don't really know mm-hmm. at all. I, I know they recorded it, and it did what it did, and yeah. then "Slippery When Wet" came out, which was of course huge, and then it humongous, became, right? Yeah, humongous, and. You're right. It, I I didn't know Runaway, but I know that She Don't Know Me has never been on any um, yeah. Grace Hits packages or anything like that. I was wrong. Runaway is the last track on that Crossroads album, yeah, which I, I think, have, but I haven't listened to for a long time, so I forgot. I would that. think Runaway is on it, yeah. yeah. Uh, I I think She Don't Know Me is probably the only one. I, I You know, it wasn't a huge hit for them. I forgot what it got to on the charts. It, was, it made a dent, but uh, it was yeah. the first single after Runaway. But, yeah. yeah, they don't they don't really include it on those packages. Yeah, I think I even heard once, and this was years ago, I could be completely wrong, I think I even heard that they purposely tried to ignore the pre slippery one wet era. Like they don't they would they don't want to go back that far. I don't know if they're ashamed of it or that it's because in your case they didn't write that song, so yeah, they don't want I don't to know. Share yeah, I don't glory. Know. I'm not sure, but that was the song that introduced Bon Jovi to me. Who did you write that for originally? Uh, it was a band called, you've never heard, called Fair Warning, which was an offshoot of the little flavor band. And, um, oh, right. That's a long story that was probably longer than you need to be for this podcast. But uh, <laughs> one thing leads to another. Yep. Well, that's interesting. I mean, uh, so you, for having, one of, having a hit with one of the biggest bands of all time, really, uh, part of this podcast is to talk about the money side of some of this. It's a mm-hmm. shame that even though you you probably have not been able to benefit as much as you should have from having a hit with a big band. It sounds well, like. I made I made some money. I mean, and I appreciate okay. it. You know, was it enough to make up for all the Aaliyah money I lost? I, uh, I don't really I don't really know. But you know, again, maybe karma. You know, yeah. I had a little. I had some good luck with Bon Jovi, and I had some bad luck with Aaliyah. So, okay. you know, it all evens out. It, it maybe close to it. Um, okay. Now, speaking of songs in uh, serendipitous situations, you had another song that was done by Santana, but right. it was on the Supernatural bonus, like uh, deluxe edition, right. not on the original edition, right? Yeah. I'm so we have another. The name of it. Sorry. Yeah, it's called Angel Love.
It wasn't one of my favorite songs, but the Genesis. I mean, here's another example of good luck, bad luck, right? Uh-huh. So, um, so I don't know. I guess I was already in, begun to go back to school, and the way that all happened, I had worked in the late '80s with, with a guy named Mason Ruffner, and uh-huh. I'm, I'm still close to Mason. I, he's one of my favorite people. He's a very interesting guitar player. In fact, if you Go on, I think, page 185, I don't know why I know this, of Dylan's book, Chronicles. Oh, sure. You'll, you'll see a couple of pages about Mason, because Mason okay. came out of uh, New Orleans. Uh, uh, he, he, he came out of Texas, but really out of New Orleans. And, you know, he's he's a very, just an interesting voice and guitar player. And at the time, everybody was trying to sign, like, you know, guitar hero guys, Stevie Ray Vaughan type guys. So so Mason got signed in the wake of Stevie Ray Vaughan and his first record was produced um oh, the McCoys, what's his name? The guy who wrote Hang on Sloopy. Um we have a brain cramp but so it's easy. I'll look it up. I'll re- okay. remember after this. But in any event, yeah. the second album was going to be produced by Dave Edmonds out of London. And uh, I was one of the first people to get into MIDI. By this time, Bert I was start. I'm sorry? Burt Russell, Wes Farrell. No, no, that's not him. Um, oh, it was, never mind. Uh, Rick Derringer was pretty oh, of course. He, am I wrong? Didn't Rick Derringer I don't write that? Think huh? he, I think he, I don't... Uh, he, they just covered it. Okay, so I'm, I'm wrong. He but he was in the okay. band. Uh, I, maybe I'm totally wrong with that. Uh, so, anyway, Rick Derringer anyway, produced his first record. That I know. And then okay. the second album was by Dave Edmonds. I was one of the, uh, This was during the time I was beginning to go back to school. I had a studio in my house, lots of mid-year synthesizers that talked to each other. And Dave Edmonds came over. I met Mason because he was being managed by my manager, and they hooked us up to see if we could write together. And I helped Mason out with the first record, prearranged a lot of things, kind of pre-production, really. And then Dave Edmonds came over and loved what I was doing and said, you got to come over to England with, with Mason and bring all your gear, too. Well, I ended up... Um, Writing, uh, renting the same kind of gear, and that was a great experience. I was in England for maybe three months, and working uh, in London on the on the album. So Mason and I became friends, and then uh, when he, a couple years later, we were writing together. Oh, he was over my house, and I had written, co-written a song with a guy named Alan Green, who's a very great blues guitarist, who was in Breathless, by the way. And oh, we, sure. And, yeah, Alan's a nice guy. We co-wrote this song that was not called Angel Love, and it was the the music was really cool. And Mason heard it and said, "Look, can I write my own lyrics to it?" And mm. Alan and I didn't care, so mm-hmm. Mason did, and it became another song. So the three of us were now writing it, and mm. Al and Mason somehow had some connection with Carlos because Carlos liked Mason. And all of a sudden, Carlos, he had heard that Carlos was recording it for a new album, which, of course, became Supernatural, and I had heard the same yeah. thing. Supernatural came out, and my song wasn't on it. Now, but good luck, bad luck, right? So that yeah. album was the last album to sell a gazillion copies, like $25 yeah. million, before right. the Internet just poked a hole in the yeah. record company or record yeah. industry. So yeah. if my even at three or four cents a copy, I would have earned, like, Serious money, like yeah, $750,000, right? Well, it wasn't on there, as you know. So then 10 years later, after the Internet, now it's on there. They Indeed, he had recorded it, and, and they scraped it off the cutting room floor, and they made it the first single. I'm thrilled that Carlos 
you know, recorded it. Um, sure, I, sure. I received one check for like uh, around two hundred dollars, and I don't think I'll. That's it. I'll yeah, I don't think I'll receive any more. I mean, oh man, yeah. that yeah, is it's, so it's just, painful. Well, you know, I mean, I'm not. I didn't ask for an audit or anything like that. It, yeah. it, you don't. You don't. You don't sell a lot of. You know, there's a lot of reasons people don't want to buy the same thing all over again. Well, of course, but, of course. And yeah. um, they remastered it, and people now experience music by streaming, and sure. it's a whole different monetary metric. And there's plenty yeah. of. Writers now uh, who just couldn't make a living anymore. Um, so, yeah. I mean, it's great that Carlos did my song. I, no, I didn't make any money from it. No. Oh, that's crazy. Wow. Uh, well, look, we're already at the end of our time here. You, you um, I, so I don't want to keep you longer. But can you can you tell me a couple of fun rock stories? I mean, can you you know you were there, you were in the trenches for a while. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, the real, the real good ones I I probably couldn't tell you, but uh, <laughs> not, uh, honestly, you know, our band it's so boring. We're we're not crazy rock and rollers. Now, I have a lot of rock and roll stories involving friends and mm-hmm. you know things I've heard over the years. But you know, did you we, ever meet a hero? Did you ever? I mean, uh, I know yeah. I've been reading about you playing with the James Gang. Yeah, that's a good one. That's a good one. I mean, okay. you know, hey, you know, if there, there's a hero band for me, it would be the James Gang. So okay. I got to meet Joe a couple times uh, on the road. and But now, I mean, Jimmy Fox, who was the drummer in the James Gang, uh-huh. uh, and I are like really very good friends. We go uh-huh. out frequently. We're actually going out this coming week to dinner. He's a real foodie, loves music. We love hanging out, talking about music. Good. You know, I've been asked to, to be the honorary fourth member of the James Gang now when they go out sometimes. Oh, that's great. Because Joe doesn't want to play keyboards okay. anymore. He just wants to play guitar. And that's a thrill for me. So I love cool. doing that, and I don't know if that will happen again. But, okay. yeah, for me okay. it was mo- it was mostly about the music. I was always kind of reading yeah. and, and doing – I wasn't doing a lot of crazy things on the road. None, nobody in our band really was. We were – we were really pretty, uh, pretty tame. Okay. About Regular about the guy. funniest stories we have uh, involve Kevin sleepwalking and myself sleepwalking. That's I mean, what I was just going to ask you. Do you have a sleepwalking yeah. story? Oh, I got a million of them. Uh, they're, they're, <laughs> most, they're mostly too embarrassing. Oh so, no! I mean, there was a there was an incident. I will just say this: the one people love to talk about is we were on the road on the bus. Which mm-hmm. you know, if you have the bus, can be a little uh, rambunctious as you're traveling yeah, down, sure, sure. and and so I was using the, the facilities, 
and um, I was zipping as the uh, as the bus was uh, into a sudden turn, and uh, the, the result was was not good. And uh, are we talking and, something about Mary? Not good. About I what? Seen that. I, if you've seen the movie, there's something about Mary. Ben Stiller gets his. Oh yeah, I got caught. I got caught totally, yeah. and it was serious. And, uh, and, and it was. Uh, every, we all. And you're sleepwalking all... at this time. You're peeing and sleepwalking. No, I was. I was actually wide okay. awake. That's even okay. more embarrassing. But I. I, <laughs> I mean, there's there's plenty of sleepwalking stories. That would be oh, like that's a great. Oh, two-hour man. podcast. So. Okay. Okay. Can you and cellar full of noise? Is that? Oh yeah. Uh, that, that was That's just uh, never going to make it to CD or anything. That's mm, just probably not. The ticking of the clock is the countdown. Some math arises, but the school closes on. The doctor, doctor is the only one in town. News like this gonna spread on. You know, I was uh, kind of a, a gasp for me. I really wanted to do that. Everybody was starting to get into other jobs, and I was just like, yeah. I want to write a bunch of songs, see what I could do by myself. And I literally made that whole record by myself. And then I invited yeah. Kevin to come down. It was all done in my studio, very low tech. And we okay. ended up getting uh, getting a deal with, with CBS Associate at the time. So I got a deal, and, you know, I got a chance to do another record and ended up going to England to do the follow-up, and I invited Donnie to be involved in the follow-up because, you know, at the end of the day, I just love working with Donnie. We were, you know, we were sort of uh, in a hiatus mode. Uh, so, but then, you know, after all that was over, we just kept making Donnie records, and we sort of went through a dark ages to me. And then yeah. now yeah. we're now we're we're really into our own again. I mean, you should see us okay. play. We we can do. Yeah. How often do you guys play? Well, we're, I don't know. Where are you from? Where are you in? I'm in Denver. You should see the band because Donnie's really to. good. The band is good. It's it's and and now we're really happy what we do good. in that regard. We have we really look forward to the shows and we have a good time. Good, good. Okay. Well, thanks for doing this, Mark. I'm sorry we rushed. I really wanted to get to know you better and hear some of your the ups and downs of your career. But I'm glad we got to highlight all the good stuff. And, um, well, yeah, there's been plenty of down, down stuff, too, but it's all good. It's all good, good, man. There you have it, Mark Absek. Such an interesting guy. I wish he'd had more time to talk because I'd really love to know more about how he made those big transitions in his life. It's really fascinating stuff. All right, we are going to switch gears now and talk to the other local legend, Jonah Coslin. Now, the song you're listening to right here is called Walk Right In, and it's probably my favorite Breathless song. It's off that self-titled album that I mentioned earlier that's so good. So Jonah has a very similar story to Mark. He's playing locally in in Cleveland in the early 70s. He eventually joins forces with the Michael Stanley Band. 
And they never quite broke out nationally, but they were a huge draw locally. They were really kind of the big men on campus around Cleveland for a while. He's pretty much, even though the band is named after Michael Stanley, he's pretty much an equal partner in that band. And he eventually decides he wants to kind of express himself, so he breaks away and forms Breathless. And they put out two albums, the first of which is great, like I mentioned, but they never quite become big enough, unfortunately, although they did open for Kiss. And uh, he tells a Kiss story in here that's really funny. So after that, Jonah kind of just becomes mainly a solo act. If you look him up in Spotify, there's all kinds of variations of, Sp of Jonah Coslin's music. There's Jonah Coslin and the Heroes. There's, uh, he joins forces with Michael Stanley again and forms this kind of side project called The Ghost Poets. He put out a new album just this year called Music that is really, really good, especially in this day and age when you almost never hear really meaty rock music anymore. Jonah is still doing it. He's had a lot of ups and downs in his career, but he's such a great guy and such a survivor. And if a couple of years ago, he retired from Cleveland and moved to LA. And so that's where I caught up with him. He called me from his home in Southern California. I, as I mentioned, um, you were a listener request, a guy by the name of Kevin Atkins. And I wanted to, the thing that's really been really interesting to me is there, there's two cities that garner the greatest response from listeners whenever I have someone on from them. And one is Philly and one is Cleveland. And people in Cleveland just love their music, and they love the bands that started there, came up through the ranks there, especially in the kind of late 70s, early 80s period. It sounds like that was just a really golden era for making a living as a local musician who was doing pretty well. Do I have that right? I mean, it seems like a lot of the people I've talked to, they could have made an okay life for themselves just playing to, like, you know, a thousand people every weekend, just about, it seems like. I don't think anyone's goal was to be a local. True. That's uh, the, yeah, yes. very true. You know, they, everybody was hoping to do something on a larger scale yeah. than that. And really, yeah. in, you know, there's, there's only room for so many people to make a living doing that just locally. But locally is, I mean, what do you mean exactly by locally? Because um, it was, you know, it was like Ohio, you know, and then spreading True. out from there, yeah. uh, St. Louis and Miami and Phoenix and all the way out was to Was that Los sort Angeles. of the circuit? That was where MSB and Breathless, too, That's that was where we had our greatest impact. Okay. Uh, probably Michael had some other areas, too, Pittsburgh, you know. And, sure. Because, um, I mean, Michael, after I was out of the band, Michael kept going for quite a while after I was out of yeah. the band. Did a bunch more records when I was doing Breathless and then the Heroes. Yeah. So I mean, we were always on the road. I was on the road always with Michael, and Breathless was on the road. And then the Heroes was more what you'd call local. We were more just okay, around, uh, okay, uh, Cleveland, Canton, okay, uh, down you know South Columbus. We played all the the Agoras and all those things. And okay. it wasn't by design. It's just that's that's the way it went at that time. Sure. That was the area of influence that the managers. That was the, the booking agents right. I was working with at the time. That was where they could put the band. I mean, you. I'm. I'm guessing everybody was hoping for more. Maybe had some some stars oh, yeah. in their eyes. But oh, um, as it was, yeah. you could you know sort of make a make do there for a while. You're probably feeling like maybe you're in the minor leagues, about to hit the majors at some point. You know, when you have a major record deal and you're 
and Breathless toured with Kiss, opened for Kiss. And when I was in, when Michael and I were playing, you know, we were uh, we were on tour. We were like a package deal with Ted Nugent and Cheap Trick uh, and Foreign, Foreigner and you go. Um, whoever else, uh, Nazareth. And, you know, we were sure. all kind of on the same circuit and we would just be going around and playing in the same venues, the, you know, two or three acts um, yeah. a night at those venues all over right. the country around the time That's of the great. Stage Pass album. Sure. When we yeah. recorded the Stage Pass album and then after that, next year that I was at the band. You know, and then after that, I mean, uh, after I left the band and, and went into doing Breathless and stuff like that, uh, you know, Michael was playing, the band was playing all over the place. You know, right, yeah. I um, I want to kind of get into some of the specifics on that, if you don't mind. But first, tell me a little bit about, I don't I don't always find, you know, the true origin story, well, I picked up a guitar at the age of six and all that. I don't find that so much very interesting all the time. But when you were a kid and you were you... I mean, you're obviously a great songwriter and a great guitarist, and you've been a lifer at this. I mean, music, I think, if I understand correctly, is still your business. I mean, you've been doing it for your life. So did you, when you were a kid, did you just have dreams and hopes of being a rock star? Who, do, who were you trying to become, the next Bob Dylan? Not, not really. I mean, when I was a, I mean, I, I was a kid and then I was a teenager. You know, when I was a, when I was a kid, when I was a teenager, it was in the 60s. Okay. And uh, and the Beatles, you know, before that, the Beatles, when they did their first show on Ed Sullivan, when they came to the States for the first time, mm-hmm. it was on February 9th, 1964, 64. I think. Yeah. yeah, that was my birthday. That was my 12th birthday. Oh, really? Yeah, my parents <laughs> my parents got me the Meet the Beatles album nice. for my birthday, and then, and then I watched the band on Ed Sullivan. And, and it was, um, I really have to say that, for me anyway, it wasn't like, oh, I want to be up on a stage and, uh-huh. you know, I want to have all the girls screaming for me. And what it was was I heard the music and I and I loved the music. Yeah. And I was really interested in the music. I was really interested. I couldn't have put it into words exactly what it was at the time. Right. I wasn't really, I was playing a little bit of trumpet at the time. That was about it. Oh, um, interesting. Okay. Yeah. My dad is a sax player. He played in big bands. And so, uh, my brother played some saxophone and I played some trumpet. 
after that, after the Beatles, you know, I mean, I was really interested in the music part of it. Okay. Um, and I loved the songs and I loved the harmonies and the chord changes and uh, hearing a band play together like that. I didn't exactly really understand what it was, but I, yeah. I was really taken by it. Uh, so when uh, so I was 12 and when I was 13, I, uh, when I went off to junior high school, as they called it at the time, mm-hmm. I started to get interested in guitar. And I had my I asked him, I told my dad I wanted a guitar. And he said, well, I, I said I wanted a bass guitar. Uh, and he said, okay, well, we'll rent you a bass guitar for six months. And if you play it for the six months and you're still playing at the end of the six months, then we'll get you a guitar. So I, I got the, the bass guitar and I was playing in bands and stuff for the six months. And after the six months, I said, well, Dad, you know, I'm still playing. I really want to do this. You know, you know, and you said you'd buy me a bass guitar mm-hmm. after the six months. And uh, he said, well, he goes, you know, I'm glad you're still doing it. And I, I think it's great. And I want you to continue to do it, but I'm not buying your bass guitar. Huh. Uh, and he said, yeah, he said, well, because I'm, I'm going to buy you a six-string guitar because you need to learn how to accompany yourself. <laughs> nice. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, and he was, you know, exactly right about that. Sure. Um, you know, and that was the thing. So I never looked back. Yeah. Yeah, I got a, yeah, my first guitar was a, a Harmony 12-string guitar because I was really into the birds at the time. I oh, right on. 12-string. And just as I, around the time I finally got the 12-string and, and was playing and stuff, Hendrix came out. Oh. <laughs> and, and so I started playing. I was trying to play Hendrix on my 12-string, which was quite challenging. Yeah, it's different, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. But uh, okay. yeah, the second, second guitar I, I my dad got me was a, uh, a Stratocaster, Fender Stratocaster. There you go. And that was okay. the guitar that I was really able to play rock music with. When Great. It was like listening to the Stones and the Beatles and and all very song-oriented, lyric-oriented, and everything. There was so much great music coming up at the time. And then mm-hmm. some of the stuff that was we called, we would call bubblegum music back then was really just very much, generally it's more pop. Mm-hmm. It wasn't so band-oriented. It was more... I guess in a way, in a sense, it's similar to the way music is today. It was very producer, songwriter-oriented, as okay. opposed to the things that the bands were doing. It's those those records were really driven by the producers and songwriters, and then the yeah. bands were were second to to them. You know, they were the performers, but they weren't really the the right. actual uh, com- uh, creatives in the process. Right. But so uh, what did all you that... see in Michael Stanley that made you? Because I'm guessing. It sounds like, just based on the other three or four people I've interviewed from that area, that it's a pretty furtive ground of musicians looking to find the best gig, the right gig for them. Um, what was it about Michael Stanley that made you that you sort of decide to hit your wagon to that? I, you know, it's called the Michael Stanley Band, but I think you were a fairly equal partner in that band, weren't you? Yeah, I was. I was an equal. That's partner. That's what I thought. I mean, it's his yeah. name, but it, you're. You're right there with him. So yeah, what, we, what was the magic was, there? Well, I was—I uh, didn't really know Michael's work. Um, I was—I oh. I had been traveling around the country. I'd never seen the tree, tree stumps, and maybe I'd seen them once. But I 
I didn't really relate to that to being Michael's band. I, w- I had been traveling around the, the country, and I was sort of settled in Denver. And yeah, that's where I am. Yeah. yeah. And uh, um, over on Ray Street in, in Denver, there's oh. big houses over there by sure. the park. Uh-huh. And, uh, so a bunch of guys living in a house, and I stayed in that house. And then the next street over, the next or two streets over from that, uh, there was a little record company. Oh gosh, really? I can't remember the name of it now, but it was Michael's. It was a company that Michael was signed to, no just way. by complete coincidence. This was in the early seventies. Yeah, this was seventy-two, I think. Wow. Probably. Yeah, and so I mean, I, I'm uh, only I live only a few blocks from there, so yeah. just the thought of there being some record company just a few blocks from my house—that's uh, uh, just mind blowing to me. You know, not yeah, I mean, some was, corporate office downtown. But in a right. little building, you know, around in, yeah. in, in, off the side street. That's crazy. Yeah, well, it's, and, you know, you, if you remember the times, you know. Yeah, of course. 72, I mean, you know, the 60s were the hippie year, and 72 is mm-hmm. still the hippie year, too. Mm-hmm. You know, things were just starting to change just a little bit, but it was still very much that kind of hippie commune mentality. So things were, were kind of back to the earth and, you know, in a very sort of Aquarian age mm-hmm. uh, type of way. So not very realistically, but you were seeing small record companies like that, that were, and even some of the bigger ones like um, Asylum Records where the, mm. you know, the, uh, the, it was very artist oriented. Yeah. Um, yeah. But that, that was kind of deal with that, but I didn't know Michael. I didn't know the the record label. Uh, I was working in a record store, and my manager at the time, Marty Mooney, who was a Columbia Records record promoter uh, for Cleveland, in Cleveland, he was promoting, you know, he'd take the records around to the station stuff. Uh, he called and he said, hey, listen, you know, this this guy in Cleveland, he's, you know, he's pretty good, he, and he's got a record deal, and he's looking for a guitar player. Would you be interested? I said, well, yeah, but I said, I want to listen and hear what he does, but I would, sure. you know, I'd definitely like to check it out. So I, I, the he, the records turned out to be at Michael's. I mean, at the record store that I was working at, mm. um, and it was right when the, his second album came out with um, uh, "Show on the Road" on it. Let's get the show on the road, babe. At the curtain, take a bow. It was the second album, which was still done with uh, a lot of Joe Walsh on it and, and sure. Storm playing on it. Um, so I was able, I got the first album, which Rose, Rose with Bitters on it, and brought it back to the place I was living and 
listen to that and then listen to this. I only really had the single at that point from the Friends and Legends album, and which was uh, years for a song. Stop talking, you better start walking around now Take a look outside yourself There's a new day just waiting, waiting to be on And it's yours for a song And it's yours for a song Come on children, for a song And listen to those. I thought, God, you know, I like this guy's voice. I like his songwriting. You know, I think I could be into doing this. Mm -hmm. uh, and then when I brought the album home and I heard Show on the Run, I thought, Oh, this is great. You know, this, this mm -hmm. is very cool. So I said, Yeah, I'll, I'll come back and you know, we can sit down and see if um, if we click. So yeah. my manager Marty flew me back to Cleveland and got together with uh, Michael, and we sat there and we played songs for each other. And he was like, Yeah, let's do this, man. I was like, Yeah, terrific. Yeah, I'd love to do cool. this. Yeah. Said, I like your, he says I like your songs. I think I'd like I'd like to like us to do a couple of those too. Well, oh, that's terrific. You know, that's <laughs> exciting, certainly okay. exciting for me. Right. I was writing a lot of I'd, I'd always I've always written a lot of material, and I was already writing a lot of material at that time. And I was because I loved songwriting, and the, the songs would just come to me all the time. You know, yeah. writing down a new song. Yeah. So then okay. he said he, he wanted to put together a band. You know, he'd already done the. Um, Midnight Special, I think it was, concert. With, oh, interesting. Cool. Yeah, with, with Joe Walsh and yeah. I can't remember. It's just a lot of really good people. David Sanborn and um, yeah, a couple of people. I want to ask you about David Sanborn. Yeah. So uh, we just started working. He said we're going to put together a band. He said, I'd like he goes, I'm going to talk to, uh, check out uh, Danny Pecchio from Glass Harp because he's not really doing anything now. And, and then we're just going to keep it a trio, just acoustic. It's like, okay, oh. great. So when we started off, that's what we did. It was just a trio, acoustic stuff, and okay. doing the stuff from Michael's two albums. And um, Daniel and I are both were uh, saying, Michael, come on, we got to rock, you know. We gotta, yeah, let's get a drummer and get out there and do some yeah. rock it up. And Michael said, okay, great. So we went around, we listened to a few different drummers, and, and then we went to see Circus at the Cleveland Agora. Uh, Tommy Dobeck was playing with Circus, and it was a great band. Circus was a great band, and did a lot of Almond Brothers material. Yeah. So it was just a wonderful band. The Balzer brothers were just fantastic. And yeah. Phil, Phil Alexander was the lead singer. And, and, okay. Uh, just a really good band. I so, thought so, because um, when I listen to those early Michael Stanley band albums with you on them, that's the kind of stuff that comes to mind. It's Allman Brothers, Leonard Skinner, that kind of southern rock, swampy, not straight up pop that we, you were mentioning earlier, more, you know, harder, rugged. Was that, I mean, was that kind of where your mind was at at the time? Really, our minds were at 
were in songwriting and harmonies. That's where it was. Oh, you know, yeah, and, okay. And our and our and our producer was um, uh, Bill Simzik, who yeah. also produced Jay Giles, BB King, yeah. and the Eagles. And yeah. he was re- he was producing the Eagles at that time. Really? Uh, and we yeah, and we we liked the fact there's a picture up on Facebook of of uh, Michael Daniel and myself sitting in chairs on a stage, and behind us is uh, is um, Don Henley's drum set with the, no the early Eagles uh, feathers. You always had like oh a, yes, a, almost like a headdress of feathers on the front on sure. the first drum. So we were we opened for them several times. We played wow. open for them down in Nashville too. That makes and, sense. Uh, so we had that was also an influence because we really liked the yeah. band and the acoustic. We wanted to do a combination right. electric acoustic. Yeah, um, which yeah, is you're right. I should have mentioned that. Yeah, Eagles make a lot of sense too. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I mean, let me that, ask you about. Oh, go ahead. Let me. I want to ask no, you about no, Bill no. more. Go ahead. Well, I'm curious. You know, Bill. You know, at the time, the Eagles are getting big, and I don't. I mean, I was little. I don't know if the name. Tell me how to pronounce his last name again. Simzik. Simzik. Sim, okay. Simzik. Yep. Got it. Okay. I've always wondered. So uh, he's a big deal, and he's coming to produce your album. For people like me who are just idiots and don't know how the music business works, how do you solicit Bill to come work on your album, and how do you get him to to sign on when he's at a point where he's really hot? I mean, no offense to you, but you're a new band. You know, you're not the Eagles, right, Ted? You're right, yeah. Well, as so how does that work? Out, <laughs> as it turns out... Uh, Michael and, and Bill were already uh, had already worked together. Bill had come to town. He was working with a uh, he was producing, but he was also kind of doing A and R work for a record label. I don't know what label it was like. It may have been ABC, okay. Dunhill, or whatever. He came to to Cleveland to check out this band Silk, which was Michael. Mm. Michael was in that band, and Bill was the story goes. Bill was tripping on acid that night. <laughs> and he loved the hum that was coming through the PA system. Oh. So he signed the band, <laughs> yes. and they made they made an album together. And uh, after that, Michael and Bill stayed close. They stayed friends. Okay. They stayed in contact. Okay. And so Michael was writing. You know, his his songwriting was really evolving. And and uh, Bill uh, came in as his producer and got him signed to the record label, the one that was over on a couple streets mm-hmm. over from Ray Street. Oh, cool. So he okay. was. So that's how he was involved in the whole project. So it pays to know the right people, basically. Right. Yeah, and it, yeah. you know, it's, have a friend. Networking is always sure so important. Yeah, that mm-hmm. helps. Okay. Um, now you mentioned you got to tell me you got to just tell me some stories. And you go you're opening for the for Eagles. I never know now whether to say the Eagles or just Eagles because I don't I don't think they want the the in there even though we always had it. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> you're opening for Eagles. I imagine you're opening for a lot of other bands in the same vein around that time. What? I we mean, play, we, yeah, I mean, well, we play. What you know? What what happens is you sign with a booking agent, uh-huh. and then the bands that the booking agent has is who you end up playing with. Right. So yeah. So you know, some of them are going to be in the same uh, style, stylistically mm-hmm. similar, but others are not. It's, that was the thing. You know, we when we signed. Uh, because when we went in to do the first album, you break it, you bought it. Uh, mm-hmm. Michael didn't have a label. The band didn't have a label. He had mm. been with MCA 
for the for the friends and legends, and and that they had dropped the band, dropped Michael, and so uh, Bill said, let's just do another album, and then yeah. we'll record it, and then I'll go and take it to the labels, and then you know they'll sign us, and that's pretty much what happened. Plus, okay. uh, the label we were signed to, we were signed to Epic Records, but we were actually signed to a division of Epic Records, which was uh, Irving Azoff's label. Oh, okay. uh, which the name escapes me right now. Something with a moon in it or something. I can't remember. Now. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Cause then there's, there's the whole connection there. I mean, Joe was with Irving, a bill was, you know, had done Joe's records, you know, so he was working with Irving and Irving was, was working with the Eagles. And so there's just huge, you know, this cross pollination going all over mm-hmm. the place. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it makes sense. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So you're out there. I mean, you're, Playing. I don't know if you guys are headlining or if you are headlining. How big? The we're not. We're not headlining. Are. We're not headlining at first. Okay. We're, you know, we're a three-piece acoustic band. Yeah, I mean, that's we, true. We would do. But even when know, it got bigger than that, no. Like when you add the drummer and you go full Eagles, Allman Brothers. Are you headlining at that point? We start to, but we're not headlining okay. all the time. Okay. Okay. The first time that we really headlined, uh, and actually had the cajones to do it right yeah. was we played in it was uh right i think it was right before we were going into record or maybe right after we finished recording wasn't released yet stage pass and yeah. uh the band had been already been on the road for two years uh opening for all these bands ted Nugent uh-huh. and foreigner and and playing with cheap trick and nazareth and a bunch of other bands too and we played in akron and the band was really good it was really hot we were hitting our peak you know, we had this this fresh batch of songs. We'd done two albums. We did the You Break It, You Bought It. We went out on tour for a while. You know, this yep. is, and then we got uh, we came back in and we did um, Ladies' Choice. Ladies Choice. Finishing it up, we decided they had a keyboard player too, and that's when we had Mark Avsek. Um, not right. Mark Avsek, uh, that he was in Breathless. We had Bob Polander. Okay. It's funny. It's funny because we auditioned Mark also for huh. for MSB, but we ended up going with Bob Polander. All right. I like Mark a lot. I like his stuff. Yeah, it's a great guy. Great guy. Yeah. Great, great musician. So we played in Akron, and we we were the headliners, and the mm. co-headliner really, but really the opening act co-headliner was. Billy Joel. And really? we played the, Whoa. Yeah, yeah, we played at the Akron <laughs> Civic. And uh and he was not happy about that. He was he was definitely not happy about <laughs> that he was opening for this un <laughs> unknown band to him, the Michael Stanley right. band. Oh uh, man. But, yeah, but we we were great. I mean really we Good. we deserved to be headlining and, and it was yeah. a great night and a great show. And I mean, it was do you it was remember like, Oh, go ahead. It was the you know it was really the point where we we broke through uh, energetically yeah. we broke through 
you know, we really cool. We owned the stage, we owned the music, you know, we owned yeah. the songs, we we owned the persona. Uh, and we great. we really had the, after a few years of, of working really hard, a couple of years of of touring really hard and recording a lot, you know, we were ready really to to own yeah. what we were doing. Well, but then you leave. Now, don't say anything because I want to touch on that in more detail here in a minute. But that's where my head goes when you say all that. It's like, well, then why did you leave? But before you answer that, tell me, mm-hmm. I mean, was Billy Joel, was he a jerk to you because he was mad? you got to tell me some stories. Did you ever interact with Glenn Fry or Don Henley very much? Or what's Ted Nugent like back in the mid-70s? Back then, Ted, back then, Ted was great. Uh, he really I still was. Think I think he was great. a really I don't, nice guy. You know, I'm not, I don't have to agree with him politically to still find him smart and funny and entertaining. You know what I mean? It's not my speed, but that doesn't make him a bad guy. So I'm glad to hear that. He seems like he'd be all right. He was back then, yeah. Good. Did you guys just keep to Did, yourselves? No, like, you know, fun yeah, we stories were, we or conversations? No, we didn't really hang out with with the other people. The other okay. band stuff. We would talk to him when we were around and stuff. That's what I'm saying. Ted was really, really great back then. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, so you know, you talk, you say hi, you talk to him a little bit. Okay. And that was about it, really. We didn't really okay. hang out with him. Um, and are you? I mean, are you realizing? You mentioned not wanting to be famous or having like girls looking at you specifically, but you are now in the beginning stages of being a rock star. You know, are that was, you feeling... I didn't want to be famous when I was 12 years old. Ah, there you go. Eventually, you got you warmed up to that idea, right? Maybe well, not famous, yeah. but being a yeah. Okay, good. That's right. <laughs> there we go. That's the of truth. Of course, it was it good. Everything all fit together, you know, into one sure. nice package of what you wanted to do and what you wanted to be. Yeah, exactly, and it's starting to come true. Are you just yeah. freaking out? I mean, how are you feeling? Yeah. Well, I guess you freak out a little bit, but okay. I was I was kind of I was just kind of going with the flow. Really, that's what oh, I was doing. I, I didn't control, really. Huh? Yeah, okay. I mean, I was still a hippie. Yeah. Was, okay. And and so I was just going with the flow, and and uh, but the thing was that I I was writing a lot of material, and yeah, I wanted to do a solo album. Yeah. Okay. Um, so this is we're getting back to now why you decided to leave, which I think seemed like a. You left a good thing, I, and and you continued to be to work with Michael and stay friends, right? So there was not a oh, yeah. no animosity yeah. or hard feelings or anything like that. No, we we worked together a lot. I played at all the shows. You know, I'd come out and okay. do, do my songs with, with the band at the Coliseum and at Blossom and you know the yeah. front row and all those things. I was always coming out and doing those shows with the okay. band. You know, I was really just full of energy, full of songs, full yeah. of ideas. Yeah. And, you know, I wanted to have the freedom to express all of it, like in the way that Bruce Springsteen would express it or David yeah. Boy would express it, and mm-hmm. just to really run a show like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I wanted to be able to really work on the material with a band. Uh, the, when, and MSP was that way, too, really. Uh, we'd yeah. come in and, you know, we'd have, I'd have a song, and Michael would have a song, sometimes Daniel would have a song, and, and the five of us would sit down with the song and we would work it out together. And, in my case, I would have a lot of ideas kind of where I wanted things to go, um, but I would really leave it to the individual members to, you know, to come okay. up with their parts with just a little bit of direction. Right. Uh, and I wanted to have a band that had possibilities uh, sound-wise okay. uh, for doing mm-hmm. the arrangements. And so that's how I ended up with, 
uh, Breathless with you know Rodney playing percussion too, and sure. two guitars, okay. two lead two lead guitars for double guitars, and you know okay. Mark is an amazing two-handed keyboard he player, sure is. which Bob yeah. is too, but lots of vo- vocals and what have you. But so yeah, I wanted to run the show. I just wanted okay. to have complete uh, creative yeah. direction and freedom. Uh, if part that. of that, and again, forgive me if this is just a completely naive question, but I'm not in the music industry. I don't know. Is is part of what's motivating that you're with Michael Stanley, and like you said, you're writing songs like crazy. And is it a is it a sense of ownership over those songs that drives the desire to be solo? I don't know if that makes no. sense. Like like I love these songs. I want to I want to keep them to myself. I want them to belong to me. Not to anyone not, else. Yeah, not really. Or is it okay? I don't know. I mean, the, what goes into the way it that, psychologically. The, the way that both Michael and I worked then and still still work today is that we, I mean, when we, when he and I were in the band together, we didn't write songs together because oh. it wasn't like one of us wrote lyrics and one of us wrote melodies and chord changes. We just would uh-huh. sit down and write a whole song, and so yeah. we would bring in a whole song, and that was pretty much it. That, but it. then you know we would contri- I would contribute to how his his songs were arranged. You know I'd have a lot of arrangement ideas for stuff, and vice versa. You know always coming back yeah. in the other direction too. There would be ideas that would come from Michael and from the band. You know why don't we try? Or they would do something and be like, yeah, let's go, let's run with that. I love that idea. Let's do something right. like that on in this section okay. here. And, yeah, uh, okay. but it was just really it wasn't a matter of ownership. But, uh, if you wrote the song, you wrote the song. You owned the song. Yeah, that was, got it. Okay. That was the deal. It wasn't okay. one of those situations where some bands, when they start off, they go, okay, you know, we're just going to all own the songs and write the songs. And as it turns out, really, there's one or two guys that write the songs and everybody's yeah. collecting on it. Got it. And then sure. that becomes a problem because, yeah. it's, it's, you know, it doesn't seem equitable after a while. But it wasn't like yeah. that. Okay. I just wanted to to really have complete creative freedom. That's got that's it. really what it was. Now, i got to uh, tell you, I discovered the Breathless album when that listener asked me to track you down. And mm-hmm. I, the first one, I love it. I immediately mm-hmm. bought it. I've listened, this is like a month ago, and I've probably listened to it every other day since mm-hmm. then. Mm-hmm. It is so wonderful. It's so fun and bubbly. And it's rock, but it's got the sort of, and I don't know how you feel about this, but I love it. There's like, even because of the time, a little, some disco flourishes going on in the background. Mm-hmm.
yeah. magical and bubbly and fun and happy. It makes me happy. I love mm-hmm. this album. And mm-hmm. um, so, first of all, hats off for making what has become just a real treasure of an album for me. I really Thank love you. it. Yeah. yeah. So, um, now the second album sounds very different. The second album mm-hmm. sounds more like those Michael Stanley albums sounded. So It's a lot, it's a lot darker, yeah. It's a lot yeah. darker. It's, yeah. yeah, Mark mentioned that too when I talked to him. Now, mm-hmm. I believe Don Gaiman produced the first album, right? Correct, yeah. I love Michael. Uh, Michael Verdict produced the second album. Okay, and I Don know is him as well. Okay. Right. Yeah, Don is really well known. Michael is, Michael is more on the engineering side. It, it turns uh, out I think okay. he, did, he actually produced a record with Ted Nugent at some point too. But, oh, okay. Um, he okay. was he was more of an engineer. Okay. He was Michael was Michael was involved. He, Michael engineered the Michael's album that had uh, he can't love you on it. The first one that Kevin Rowley was on. Michael Verdick was the engineer in that album. Okay. The one that had uh, Clarence Clemens playing sax all over it. Right, right. I know great, great album, yeah. Yeah, it sure is. So, I, so I'm so i wondering, and it, I'm sure I have this wrong, but in my mind I'm thinking, okay, here's Jonah who has had, um, who's had a particular sound that we just talked about from Michael Stanley, and then Breathless, the first one comes out, it's kind of an outlier. It's a very different sound than the rest of them. The second album comes out, and it's back to closer to that darker. It's more dark. It's not as eagles, but it's rooted more there than it is in the first album. Is that because did you feel like your first, the first Breathless album was a mistake or not representative of where you were at at the time? Or you know, I know neither. No offense, I know neither of them were overly successful. What were you kind of thinking at the time? Do they represent where your head was at? Oh yeah. Oh, good. Yeah, okay. the the first one I was very uh, the band had rehearsed for about a year and a half, and we okay. had probably I don't know thirty five songs that were okay. you know ready to record, and we got the deal, and I was very excited about it. I wrote like another five songs after mm-hmm. we got there around the time we got the deal, and the, all of them went on the album. In fact, after that though, we, that's when we went on tour with Kiss, uh. and. You know, it's a much. Their Kiss is a much harder rock band than than the first Breathless album is. Sure. The first Breathless album was very pop. It was, um, and I'm That's proud of it as like being it. a. It's a pop album. You know, I'm proud yeah. of that. Uh, it's, you know, it's very ori- oriented towards harmonies, big harmonies mm-hmm. all over the place. Second album has harmonies on it, but much simpler harmonies on it. Uh, the arrangements are are very. 
thick <clears throat> on the first album. Right. Uh, lots of parts, you know, clever parts and, and sounds all over the place. The second album is more open and spacious. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it's just it's the second album is just a lot darker. It's um, co- the chord cording in a lot of it is is simpler than the the chord changes in the first album. So tell me about Kiss. I mean, that's even on your Wikipedia page. That has, in fact, I I heard you and Breathless brought up on another podcast just like a week ago about uh, talking about opening for Kiss. So this is obviously mm-hmm. kind of a a big deal, a feather in your cap. Do you have any fun stories about that? Well, my, you know, Kiss is it's like opening for the circus. I mean, it was just, they were fantastic. <laughs> yeah. And I, I'd, yeah. I'd gone to see them before, before we toured with them. I'd gone to see them. I loved the band. You know, I loved what they were doing musically, too. I thought it was great, really, you know, yeah. real rock. And it was lots of hooks, you know, mm-hmm. and clever melodies and, and still a real rock edge to it. So I liked that a lot. Uh, you know, we talked to the guys a little bit. Uh, a couple times, Gene came up to me during uh, when the band was getting, you know, when the roadies were setting stuff up, and I talked to him a little bit. But my favorite story with uh, Kiss was that um, when we were first on tour with them, uh, they would always take the dressing rooms furthest from the stage, and uh, we would we would have the dressing rooms closest to the stage. So they would be, they would you know be walking by our rooms. Well, when we were first on tour, they were just the roadies were all uppity, and we had to be inside the room with the doors closed when they walked oh, up and down. Yeah. <laughs> well, that lasted about a week, you know, and then after that, right. like, oh fuck, fuck this. <laughs> right. Excuse, excuse my no, French. You can fuck say this. It. It's okay. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. It's you know, so that was done with it. So we would sit, we'd be sitting in our dressing room. We'd we'd have done our opening act, and you know, we'd be sitting there. Uh, just chilling and you know drinking a little bit or whatever and, and talking hanging out and and the, and then Kiss would be ready to go on stage and so they would walk by uh, the, our dressing room since the door was open then and it was usually in the same order that they would walk by I can't remember exactly what it was now but uh, huh. it was probably Paul first and then Peter and and Ace and and then last would always be Gene right uh, and this is when they had their full regalia on you know this is when yeah, Gene sure. was like you know, nine feet tall with claws on the end of his feet. And he had yeah. the samurai haircut and the right. shoulders with, with the claws over the, over his shoulders. And, and this so, the and dynasty have the, era, right? I yeah. 79. Exactly, yeah. yeah. This would have been yeah. dynasty. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. And, uh, and he had the, the, the guitar that looked like, I think it was the one that looked like an ax uh-huh. guitar. So they, you know, they would walk by and Gene would walk by and he'd kind of be clumping by like he was like a dinosaur, you know, uh-huh. And he would, he would, you know, they'd walk by and he would never, they would never look in the dressing room and they would just walk by. And so one time it was the usual, you know, Paul went by and Peter went by and, and Ace went by and then Gene's walking by, kaplunk, kaplunk, kaplunk. Uh-huh. And, and then, and then he kind of shuffled back into the door, doorway and he turned in and he went, it's a living. <laughs> Nice. Yeah. He knew. Well, that's cool. So, I mean, I've heard. I've, I I love Kiss, and I'm mildly obsessed with them, as are millions of other people. And so, um, anytime I have someone on here who has crossed paths with them in some way, I I want to hear the stories. Most of them are positive. Some of them aren't. But um, that's good. Did you get to? Did you chat much with any of the rest, or was 
Gene the most kind of out social and gregarious. Yeah, board. he was the most social. I mean, Paul was really nice, but uh, and I never really talked to Peter or, or uh, Ace. Okay. But uh, Gene was the the most outgoing. Okay. Okay. Do you remember how many shows about that you opened for them? Did you go on like a big tour or something? Uh, we weren't out for that long with them. I don't know, maybe it was a month. Okay, okay. Yeah. Who else? Were the, I mean, were you back on that same circuit of Foreigner and Ted Nugent and stuff? Mm, or were you uh-uh. branching no. out? Yeah, no, we just that was the tour that we did. Uh, okay. To support the... That was a oh, national tour that we did. I get it, okay. The, so there was one tour to support the first Breathless album, and it right. was that one, opening for Kings. Right. Okay. Exactly. So yeah. when you... I mean, let's get into some of the sadder part here. So you put your heart and soul into Breathless... You break off. This is your baby. These songs are great, as you know, and it's not connecting, maybe, like you thought it might. Um, how are you feeling at the time? Um, is it frustration? Is it satisfaction that you got something out there? How are you feeling? I think it was frustration. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Yeah. That's too bad because, I, I mean, it seems like, this is an outsider's perspective that you you've remained more or less kind of a kind of a cult artist ever since you know mm-hmm. doing yeah. your own thing you've got your your own bands the heroes and you and Michael team up for the ghost poets and stuff like that it sort of seems like you've been just kind of doing mining your own sort of side vein a cult act ever since then do I mm-hmm. is that about right yeah it's about right okay I mean, is that okay? Is that something that time has taught you was turned out to be great? How do you feel about that? Well, it's there's no way to make a living doing that. That's for sure. Yeah. Uh, okay. That's what I wondered. You know, yeah. Um, you can't have you... a a major record deal doing that either. Yeah. Yeah. But then at a certain point, you know, the business changed so much that nobody had a major record deal. Right. Right. Except yeah. for the, the the acts who had been really big, yeah, uh, coming back for a second time around. So when I was just, the last time you could make a living as a musician? Well, I made a, a living as a musician for ten years from. Uh, oh great! Okay, about two two thousand and three to to uh, two thousand thirteen or you know really. Or what were you doing? Yeah, just your own I stuff was, or what? No, I was playing freaking restaurant bars. Oh, really? You know, doing uh, my things for a set and then doing Jimmy Buffett and reggae music and whatever you have, you know, and it's it's just like any other job, you know. It's just exactly really? like any other job. Um, huh. Yeah, it's it's when I was done with it after doing it for 10, 11 years, it was like, I'm done, period. You know, yeah. Uh, well, just, I guess I should clarify. What what do you do now? I know you live I'm in L.A., right? Oh, you are okay. Oh, yeah. No, that's I'm great. Retired. I didn't know if you were like an engineer or a or a producer or something like that. Side I'm man. recording. Yeah, I've I've written hundreds of songs through the years, okay. and I'm recording those songs for okay. the people that are interested in hearing them. That's right. what I'm doing right now. You know, I mean, okay. if there was a, an opportunity that came along, I I might be interested in it, but uh, I'm you know I'm not going to start another band. And right. That's, that's rather pointless. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, so I want to get to music because that album is great too, by the way. But So when Breathless comes and goes, 
is there ever a point where you have to go get a red? Because one of the things we talk about on this podcast, honestly, is sort of the financial side of things. Because I think it's mm-hmm. interesting for people to find out that you know they think people are rock stars, but in reality, those guys have to pay their bills just like anyone else. And so, was there ever a point between then and 2013 when you finally decided to kind of retire that you made oh, a yeah, living I... doing something other than music? Oh yeah, I stopped. Oh really? Um, I stopped doing music. Um, almost completely in uh, the mid-90s. And uh, I started doing uh, computer graphics and computer animation. And I produced a couple of um, CD-ROM games at the time and uh, one with the Improv Comedy Club. And that's when the Internet started to happen right after that. So it's multimedia, they used to call it. It was just starting. And I had... I had gone to school, art school, before I'd, I'd cut off into music. Oh, interesting. Uh, and, I, and everybody that was, pretty much everyone that was involved in doing computer graphics was coming out of traditional uh, art background and print background, and, and I wasn't, and it, so it mm-hmm. played for my benefit because I wasn't stuck in the same box. Right. I understood the technology better. So, you know, I went off and started doing that because I saw it as an opportunity to make yeah. a living and I was able to make, you know, a pretty good living there for a while oh, for the first good. time because I was I wasn't making it as a musician. Right. Um, right. And then all that changed too, you know, around yeah. like 2001 that that bubble burst and that all changed yeah. too and after after that I I kind of drifted back into doing music again. Okay. Now, uh describe for me a little bit when you were saying going back into music and playing in like bars and restaurants and stuff like that. What what kind of life is that? I mean, are you playing every weekend? Are you Hustling to get gigs whenever you can. Do you have a, yeah. a, a yeah, residency? Okay. okay. Yeah, well, I, I kind of had a residency. I played at this place called Bahama Breeze, which was uh, it's a chain throughout the different cities in the country. Mm. And so I would play there, you know, maybe four times a month, and then I would okay. fill up my my calendar as much as I could everywhere else. And in the summers, you can play up in the islands in Lake Erie, and there's a lot oh, fair nice. amount of work in the summer, but not as much work the rest yeah. of the year, so you pretty much have to get your nut in the summer. Yeah, understood. Okay. But as huh. the time went on, when I first started doing it, which is about 2003 maybe, uh-huh. and to the time that I stopped uh, around 2013 or 2014, it completely changed. Yeah. Um, the downside of it to begin with was that people used to smoke in the restaurants, which would screw with my voice. Mm. But the downside at the end was there were big screen TVs all over the place. Yeah, and you would yeah. never play without big screen TVs on everywhere. And, and for after a while, the feeling was this is pointless. Why am I doing yeah. this? Yeah, you know, people are. Uh, at what do they just need some extra noise in here? I mean, what's right. the deal? I know. <laughs> I uh, I have a I have a kind of a story about that. I don't know if you'll care. So about ten, well, no, ten, fifteen years ago, uh, I worked for uh, Tower Records. Uh, I was in their corporate offices in Sacramento. And one of my favorite bands at the time were called the Pernice Brothers. And they mm-hmm. came through Sacramento and did a show. And I got to go to the show, and I was so excited seeing one of my favorite bands. And like you said, next to this stage is a TV with a basketball game on it. Yeah. And I played fantasy basketball. And yeah. just like people play fantasy football or fantasy baseball, I played fantasy basketball. And uh-huh. two of the guys on my fantasy team were playing in the game on that screen right next to the stage. 
And uh, to this day, I regret so much that I couldn't just focus 100% on seeing a band I loved, but right. they got like 70% and 30%. Every two seconds, I would have to look over to see if my guy was getting a rebound so right. that I knew that I would get a, you know, that I would win that night or whatever. I've right. never forgotten that. So I can only yeah. imagine being the performer with that stuff going on around you where it's like, it's not even about me anymore. You know, I'm just background. Well, it's not even about music people. anymore. Let alone yeah, about me. yeah, yeah. Really, right. it's not. And it, it reached the point where there were, where I would be playing, and there would be screens next to me, and then I'd be playing across from a bar, and there'd be a screen above the bar. And yeah. after a while, I just watched too. You know, I I played automatically because <laughs> it was like, who cares? You know, you don't yeah. care. I don't yeah. care either. Give me my paycheck. Well, that's right. no way to. That's no way to be a musician. Yeah. You know, it, it just killed my spirit yeah, for a while. Yeah. In it's between songs, what, you're like, what's that the was, score? Yeah. Yeah, well, I don't even care about that. I'm just watching people run around. True, you know? yeah. Oh, that's sad. Uh, so it, it was, when I stopped doing it uh, in 2015, 2014-2015, um, I just stopped. I, I, you know, I, I quit the whole thing, uh, moved out to California, uh, to be with my dad and and my girlfriend at the time who's now my wife. Oh, so um, you haven't lived in California very long. Uh, it's been two and a half years. Yeah. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and so when I uh, I didn't think I was going to do any music anymore. I just thought this is it. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm done with this crap. But uh, my wife was so encouraging that I should, you know, I we were going to see bands. She loved to go see bands, so I would go with her to see different groups and we you know we'd see some great bands like um Huey Lewis and mm. Steve Miller and Paul sure. Oates and you know yeah. uh, and then we'd see there was a bunch of really good um uh uh tribute bands coming through too so we saw this wonderful uh uh um Queen tribute band they were mm. just great Tr- tremendous uh Freddie Mercury in that band and the whole band was great Correct. and uh, a Fleetwood Mac band whatever so that you know, I was enjoying that a lot. I was just enjoying being a uh, in the audience and doing it. And I started thinking about some of the old, many many old songs I'd written mm-hmm. and how much fun it would be, which is surprising in and of itself, to record those. And she was so encouraging that oh, I do great. that 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 I you know I started doing it. And I thought oh, I'm having fun with this. I think I'm Good. doing this. And that's that's how music um, came came about. I uh, I love music. It is. I mean, for a guy who's just sort of now, I was. I've been vaguely familiar with Breathless and Michael Stanley Band over the years, but I've never really fully dove in until recently.
music is so much fun. It is just that great meat and potatoes rock. The thing I love about it is that there's a lot of horns. You're not afraid mm-hmm. to use horns on mm-hmm. these songs, which I feel like horns have become extinct in rock <laughs> music now. You yeah. know? I think Nobody's yeah, doing it like anymore. Rock, like rock music has become extinct. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yes. And so I listen to something like music, and I know that it's independently produced. And here's the deal. I'll, I'll be honest. So a lot of the time I'll have – people like you on the show who are older and they're kind of just now putting out some solo material after having a career way in the past like you did. And Mm -hmm. it's okay, but it does to me sometimes sound like an old dog trying to learn new tricks, you know, Mm -hmm. like uh, the production's okay, but it sounds a little Pro Tools-y or a little, Mm -hmm. yours sounds Mm -hmm. Like it's got soul. It's real. Thank you. And I just, I really am so impressed. One time back in 09, that's when I fell for a 10. My fool heart took a beating for sure. And I swore I'd never do it again. I knew better. I tempted fate. Mercy me, that woman was fine. Well, the next thing I know, she's leaving me. I, I don't know what your expectations are when you put out new albums at this point. I don't know how big your fan base is. If you feel comfortable and happy with how you, these things turn out and how they sell, but I really like that album, and I just want you to know. Yeah, yeah, I'm very, yeah, I'm really satisfied. I'm really pleased with how it turned out. Good. I did almost almost everything on it except for saxophone and harmonica. Uh, Rick Williger did the harmonica on it, and um, I uh, and then I had a wonderful uh, uh, mastering engineer do the mastering on it, um, and those those are the only contributions mm-hmm. that were made as outsiders, along with all my you know my friends and cohorts who gave me feedback yeah. on mixes and whatever like that. But that's what I wanted to do. I wanted mm-hmm. to do a, an album that that I would have loved in the seventies. Yes. You know, yeah. something that had a lot of R and B touches to it and a little country to it and yeah. Uh, you know, a lot of Stones influence in it and a little bit of Faces influence. And those are the things that I loved that I didn't really explore that much when I was an artist, you know, doing albums. Right. Uh, I was much more in the pop vein for those. So right. I wanted to do real, real rock record. Just recently I pulled out the, oh, I didn't pull it out, but I brought it up on, on um, uh, streaming, Apple mm. Apple Music and uh uh-huh. The other one, what is it? What's it called? Spotify. Anyway, 
What's that? Spotify? Yeah, Spotify. Right up yeah. on Spotify. Uh, the Beatles, which, and I haven't, it was a pleasure because I really haven't listened to them in probably 15 years. Uh, and it reminded me something that I've always gone by, which is the Beatles experimented. You know, the Beatles yeah. would do a country song. The Beatles would do an R&B song. They'd do a blues song. They, You know, they would do whatever. Right. And they would put their mark on that. And it was about the song. It was about the lyric. It was about the performance. And it was about the band playing as an ensemble. And that's what made it so wonderful. You know, it's just yeah. a wonderful band. Uh, and so, I, you know, I thought, I'm just going to do whatever the fuck I please. Yeah. You know, I'm going to put on, I'm going to do whatever types of music I want to do on here, but try to, but I wanted to keep it still in the more raw roots form of it rather than going, yeah. I wanted to do more uh, with the, with the blues and R and B and, and yeah. rock real rock and roll based to it rather than going off quite as much into yeah. pop. My stuff's always going to have the pop stuff to it, but sure. Cause it's going to well, be hooky. Yeah. But it uh, swings. I love it. Yeah. It's just like those old Jay Giles albums and stuff like right. that. It's exactly. really yeah. solid stuff, man. I really yeah. like it. This has been great. And I just, I want to wrap it up with, I want to hear what your best memory is. When you look back on your career and granted there was a, there was a high point there, but there's been a lot of interesting and good things that it sounds like you're satisfied with that have come out since. When you look back, what is just your best, tastiest, most amazing memory? And then, can, if you if you have a regret, what's your biggest regret? I can tell you what my my favorite memory is because it's it's a memory that's happened many times. Oh, uh, through the years, I've uh, had some wonderful opportunities to be in front of a large number of people mm-hmm. who've known my music. Mm-hmm. And to come out on a stage, and I still get to do it even now, though not for the last couple of years since I've been out in California, but now what would happen is that I would, the last time probably I did it was with uh, when Michael played at um, uh, the Roxino, and I came mm-hmm. into town, I was mm-hmm. into town uh, visiting, whatever, and so I showed up when he played there, and I came out on stage right. and did Nothing's Gonna Change My Mind with the band, and I don't know what else yeah. we did, but I know we did that. To walk out on a stage where people know my music, and yeah. and they love it, and it really means something to them, and and yeah. it, you know it's meant something to them in their lives, and to walk out and for that moment, I do it every time it happens. I have the opportunity where you know it's such a special moment. Mm-hmm. I will just completely open up to that moment and with yeah. gratitude and appreciation yeah. of to be able to to be there in that you know that. Yeah that refined environment, you know, yeah. that kind of electric atmosphere that, yeah, it's, just be you know, it's just, make sure you're yeah, aware just, of how good it is be, at the moment. It, that's right? what it is. Just to be present for it like that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, for that, for those moments. And so it's a memory, you know, that it's happened. I don't want to say many times, but it's happened several times. Yeah. Uh, and that's, that's really it to, to know that, to, to have actually created something that touched and reached people in, in that kind of way that they just spill that amount of love and appreciation towards you right. uh, is, is really special. You know, it's, it's a real gift to be able to yeah, bless and to be able to, to receive that. Yeah. I thought of one more question for you. David uh-huh. Sanborn, you mentioned him earlier. 
he played right. on the second Michael Stanley Band album, right? Right. And right. He also that would played. Oh, go ahead. He also played uh, on Ladies' Choice. The Ladies' Choice. Album. That's what I mean. There's isn't a, that the second? Yeah. Isn't that the second one? Yeah. That's right. That's the second MSB. I'm thinking. I'm thinking of the Show on the Road album, the second oh, Michael sure, Stanley sure, sure. album. Yes. Yeah. No, President I'm Legend. thinking of the band yeah. one. Yeah. Right. So yeah, he played on but, that. That would have been around 1975, which is around the same time that he's playing on the Young Bowie's Young Americans album, and which is a real showcase for him. I mean, he's he's doing a lot of different things. But how are you getting? Had that just happened? Did it happen after? Did he have? How did you get him on your album at that time? Bill Simzik. Really? <laughs> oh yeah. That's the key. It all oh, goes yeah. back to that acid trip, doesn't it? It all goes it back. Does. It to all goes right drop. back to that acid trip. Yep. <laughs> oh, that's great. To the hum Doing and good the drugs PA. with the right people just makes <laughs> knocks down all kind all kinds of doors, right? Yeah. yeah. Doors of perception, cool. right? There you go. Yeah, that's it. Doors of perception. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you, Jonah, for doing this with me. All right, Chad. There you have it, Jonah Coslin. I really like that guy, and I'm so glad that he's been able to make a living. There's been a lot of ups and downs, but I'm glad he's made a living as a musician because he's really good at it, and he deserves it. And if you like Meat and Potatoes Rock, which who doesn't, and you almost never hear it anymore, check out his new album, Music. It's worth your time. That's N-U-S-I-C, just like music, only with an N. Um, now, the song you're listening to right now is called Nothing's Gonna Change My Mind, and it's probably his most well-known track. I gotta ask you a question. It's very inside baseball. <clears throat> the opening riff of this song, that kind of acoustic strum, if there's anyone out there who listens to the free version of Spotify, and you know how they Spotify will play ads for Spotify during those commercial breaks? Tell me if the riff to this song wasn't used in a Spotify ad. I swear it was, or it's so close. I don't hear the ad anymore. It was probably a year or two old by now. Anyway, I know that's very specific, but maybe there's somebody out there that recognizes what I'm talking about because I swear I've heard it. All right, next week we are sticking in the same vein of like late 70s, early 80s, meat and potatoes, rock and roll. We're gonna talk to a almost one hit wonder from from 1980. hilarious awesome guy with some excellent excellent stories so i hope if you like this kind of thing come back next week and listen to that episode too and if you like what we're doing here and this is your first time checking us out go into the archives see what else is in there this is what we do we try to tell the stories of the emotional psychological and financial impact of rock stardom And maybe it was brief, maybe it lasted a while, maybe it never quite took off, maybe you were behind the scenes, but what is that like? What effect do those things have on your life? That's the story we try to tell here. So you can go into iTunes and you can subscribe and you can write a review, I would love that. You can find us on Facebook, you can like our page, you can send me a message on there if you want. You can email me at thehustlepod at gmail.com or you can find us on Twitter, which I'm barely on anymore, at The Hustle Pod. Huge thanks to Yan the Man Makevich, as always, for putting this episode together. Thank you, Yan. Everybody, we will be back next Tuesday with another excellent episode. We'll see you all then. 